Welcome to Shiftmakers with your host, author, and journalist, Marianne Schnall. Hello, this is Marianne Schnall. Welcome to the podcast. A few months ago, when the world was very, very different, I was sitting at a luncheon next to Kimberly Crenshaw. At that time, I had mentioned to her how she was someone who I'd long admired and always wanted to interview. And we talked about being in touch and and scheduling. So imagine to be granted an interview with her at this moment where so much in our world has changed and her work has never been more relevant than it is right now. It is long past time to confront the deeply embedded systemic racism that exists in this country and finally have the national conversation and make the commitment towards transformative change these issues deserve and require. During this raw and fertile time, we can thankfully look to the wisdom of longtime civil rights activists, advocates like Kimberly Crenshaw, co-founder and executive director of the African American Policy Forum and professor of law at UCLA and Columbia Law School. Crenshaw has been working on these issues for decades and offers a frame that takes into account the complexity of these issues and the often overlooked intersections of our multiple identities. More than 30 years ago, Crenshaw, who was a leading scholar of critical race theory, coined the term intersectionality, to describe the way people's social identities can overlap and how that impacts their experiences, as well as the collective work we need to do to uproot inequality and injustice. As she has described the term in her own words, intersectionality is, quote, basically a lens, a prism, for seeing the way in which various forms of inequality often operate together and exacerbate each other. We tend to talk about race inequality as separate from inequality based on gender, class, sexuality, or immigrant status. What's often missing is how some people are subject to all of these, and the experience is not just the sum of its parts. In the wake of the pandemic, which has disproportionately impacted marginalized communities, whether it is women, people of color, low-income workers, or immigrants, it has become increasingly critical to understand, acknowledge, and create solutions that take into account how COVID-19 is affecting various vulnerable populations and the overlaps that exist within those groups of people. And now, in the aftermath of the murders of George Floyd, Breonna Taylor, and countless other unarmed Black Americans, it has become essential that we look at the multitude of challenges currently facing the Black community, who in addition to dealing with police brutality and the many other expressions of racism that are entrenched in our society and institutions, also make up a large portion of low-income and essential workers serving on the front lines and are disproportionately falling sick and dying at higher rates than the rest of the population. And now, let's join my conversation with Kimberly Crenshaw. Just to just, you know, sort of like place us in this moment, it seems like between the global pandemic and the groundswell of uprising support for the Black Lives Matter movement, it does seem like the world is finally beginning to sort of sit up and, and pay attention. And I've heard a, a few people say that, you know, this time feels different. Mm-hmm. Do you think there might be a chance for real change here? What's your hope for how we can emerge from this moment? And what do we do now to get there? Well, 
I do think, you know, as a social justice advocate, I always have to hope that this moment is different, <laughs> you know? So it just kind of goes with uh, the territory to, to make that hope. Now, you know, the real question is, what are the odds and, and what are the conditions of possibility for this to be different? So I start with the, the conditions of possibility for it to be different. I think we are seeing in this moment people being activated that never thought that this issue would be theirs. And I also think that that activation has heightened rather than diminished the problem that we're protesting. In other words, we are protesting policing that is literally out of any control that reflects the fact that we live in a democracy. And the fact that more people are seeing it means that we're not just protesting the thing that we saw on the video, which was horrific in and of itself. But now the crackdown of righteous indignation and expression of masses of people. So firing tear gas into crowds of peaceful protesters, knocking over a 75-year-old man and marching on. It doesn't require those of us who've been sounding the alarm for the last three years that we were sliding into a police state. We can see it now. Mm -hmm. People are able to see it now. So I think the legibility of this moment is politically opening up possibilities that don't open as, as long as people see the issue as being someone else's issue or just a particular expression of a bad apple. I think this is a moment where we're looking at the barrel and we're able to see the barrel in, in a clarity that we haven't in a generation. So that's the condition of possibility that makes me hopeful. The condition that makes me worry is that for a lot of people, this is not a wake-up call to how bad things are. This is a moment for them to say, hell yeah, and that's the way we want it to be. You know, we used to say heightening the contradiction. It's heightening the tensions. I would say between those who want to double down on this level of brutality, and there are some that look at that videotape and do not see a problem. And I think what's useful for us is to realize that a lot of the folks who are cool with the status quo, uh, the folks that progressives think that we're going to be able to woo back over to this side, they're not wooable. Mm -hmm. And we don't want to woo them. You know, mm -hmm. They don't have a problem with this. So now that makes, I hope, it more clear. We need to figure out what the we is and not constantly trying to recruit these others back in and speak with a clarity that should come from a direct confrontation with the level of depravity that we are seeing now mm -hmm. to rededicate ourselves to actually speaking this truth and making our politicians accountable for the demands that we're making right now. So the clarity is what makes me, you know, more confident I think that it's both the combination of these like, you know, horrific instances of police brutality from Breonna Taylor to George Floyd to countless other, you know, unarmed Black Americans whose name we don't know, you know, coinciding yes. with the extremely concerning disproportionate impact that we're hearing about of the coronavirus on communities mm -hmm. of color. 
So the, the question that I think I and, you know, many people sort of keep coming back to is, where do we begin? How do we begin to adequately address such a long, painful history of systemic, you know, structural racism and ensure transformative change? And what does it mean right now to be an effective ally or co-conspirator as part mm-hmm. of this movement? Yeah, yeah. And I, I like I like the, the language of uh, the co-conspirator. I think, frankly, that there is some unlearning and some, I guess, historic archaeology that has to be done. And by that, I mean, we are now in a period in which the belief that inequality is the product of individual or group incapacity to take advantage of the opportunities that exist. That, that that has sort of been the baseline that we basically live in a fairly fair, you know, society. So if it turns out that bad things that happen in life tend to bunch themselves around certain people, it's not telling us that there's a problem with our society that, you know, distributes those bad things onto certain people. It's those people bringing the bad things on themselves. Mm -hmm. So think about what happened when finally the racial disparities that COVID lays bare was at the center of conversation. Did that shift the orientation of folks in Washington to say, you know what, actually, we really must have a problem of societal and structural racism because look at what's happening to people who are, you know, disproportionately dying of this disease. It's, you know, largely black people and then, you know, brown people and native people. This must be telling us there's something that's positioning them in such a way that the greater risks of death are visiting themselves upon them. But that was not where people went. What Mm -hmm. what they went was to the reflexive, well, it must be something that you're doing. It must be something that you're bringing on, you know, yourself. So, you know, it's sort of an analog to rape culture. When when women get raped, our culture tells us to ask, well, what did you do to bring it on? Why were you with this guy? What were you wearing? What were you doing? Rather than focusing on what is the agent or what is the mechanism that makes this group vulnerable to that? And I think that now that it happened with a disease like this, it has uh, at least caused us to look at how many other causal explanations for widespread gaps in well-being, even in the ability to live, like the mortality gap between Black people and white people is huge. Mm -hmm. So this is, I think, number one, it shouldn't have taken a disease to make and I would say liberals and progressives as well, rethink their reliance on inequality as a product of deficits in people and cultures, rather than it's a problem of damaged institutions that have never really reconstituted themselves after segregation. I'm of the mind that, number one, you got to dig a little on the ground you think you're standing on so you can actually see that much of what you take for granted in society is actually, you know, layers upon layers of inequalities that have allowed for a baseline that's fundamentally unequal and a product of white supremacy to just be 
taken as the natural point of departure for all things. Mm -hmm. And when black people fall behind, it's because they didn't do what they needed to do rather than we started on a, a platform that was fundamentally unequal, unintentionally so, and are not paying attention to it just plays forward that inequality that's, that constituted the baseline from the beginning. So just to put a point on that example, we used to do a lot of structural racism training. We had, you know, the the opportunity to do it for a really well-heeled organization. People traveled all over the country to come to this place because it's a fancy place. And we would spend five days with people bringing them from, you know, the moment of quote unquote discovery all the way to this current moment. And we would talk about all of those specific policies that can now be traced to the inequalities that we see in society today. And a lot of stuff people didn't know about. I mean, they just, they didn't know about $200 billion being uh, made available by the federal government to build the suburbs. And less than 1% of that went to, less than 2% of that went to people of color. They didn't know about that. So then I asked people, if you don't know how this society was actually created in an intentionally discriminatory way, what are you inferring then? Because you look around and you see the inequality, so you have to have an explanation for it. What is it? And then they start telling you what they thought. That's a meaningful moment because people have to ask themselves, why am I okay with this? I'm okay with it because on a fundamental level, I believe that I worked hard to get everything I got. And therefore, if you don't have what I have, it's because you're not working hard. However liberal people are, if they haven't thought about that, that's a default. So when you say what we need to do, one thing is start asking ourselves exactly how did I get where I am and why is someone else or the family is someone else in a fundamentally different position? So anyone who inherits wealth from property, for example, has to ask themselves, how were they in the position to get that? And how is someone else not in the position? So back in back in the 40s, when they were creating these suburbs, you, you would have a black GI and a white GI. They, they, they have the same income, like forty five dollars. You know, they have forty five dollars for housing. The white guy can invest it in housing and build wealth and take care of his kids and send them to college and take care of their grandparents in old age and have enough wealth for them. The black person who wasn't able to invest in real estate had to spend his rent on, you know, substandard apartment in some high-rise apartment building and passes their propertylessness on generation to generation. That's why we have huge disparities in wealth, which ends up being disparities in education and health and finally disparities in their encounter with police. Mm -hmm. This is this is what it means to say this is a structural problem. And in terms of the new paradigms that are part of the solution, of course, you know, you having coined this term intersectionality more than 30 years ago, which to me is such a necessary and like urgent lens to use when looking at like all the many issues and problems we face, you know, as a nation and globally. And I, I remember when you you and I were at Pat's luncheon and you were you were sort of lamenting to me that, how, you know, it's frequently misunderstood and misused by people sort of of all sides for different purposes. But how can we apply intersectionality's intended principles in the times we face today? Well, I think there, there, there are a couple of sort of top line things. One is being able to read the consequences of being trapped in multiple systems 
of inequality. Right? So it's not just people of color, black people in particular, are experiencing police violence. They're experiencing police violence, anti-black police violence. At the same time, they're experiencing violence in health. At the same time, they're experiencing defunding of essential resources in their community. At the same time, they are serving, particularly in many small towns, as an ATM, you know, to make up for budgets that are being slashed by local officials using criminalization as a way to generate resources. This is what the Ferguson report was basically talking about, that fines and fees for walking in the middle of the road or having uh, grass that's over, you know, a certain number of inches, incurring huge fines for, you know, these basic violations that then get people trapped and locked in the criminal justice system. And then you get locked in the criminal justice system by not paying a fine. And then that becomes part of your record and the job that's already hard for you to get because there's still employment discrimination evaporates overnight. And then your capacity to actually take care of your family goes with it because now unemployment and other government supports are no longer there because they have been retracted while money for militarization and policing has gone through the roof. Mm -hmm. So there are all these systems. There's the employment system. There's the child welfare system. Uh, Dorothy Roberts says that by her estimation, more than 50% of all black children are in some way caught up in the child welfare system. And why is that? Because low income capacity to fully take care of your children is bottoming out in Mm -hmm. American society. And it's only going to get worse now that the economy is tanking. So you've got all of these systems that you're caught up in. And, you know, when I think about like black women in particular, there is the system of what counts as a good mom. And already by stereotype, black women are at the margins of that economically, where many black women are situated in the workforce puts them in jobs with, you know, low pay, no benefits. So their capacity to fully take care of children and and provide for them is undermined by the very economy that they're in. Then they're subject to child welfare that comes and takes them. Most cases of family separation are not because of violence, but because of incapacity to provide the things that our system says kids deserve and need, which is health care, food and protection. Many of these inequalities are the product of intersecting dynamics of inequality. It's not just one or it's not just one separately. It's how they all come together to create so many of these perfect storms. Mm -hmm. And then that perfect storm often gets used by the police to justify communities being pathologically constituted Mm -hmm. rather than the pathologies of inequality in society creating specific kinds of obstacles that distort the life chances of people in predictable ways. Mm-hmm. So that's what looking at these intersectionally hopefully can bring to at least our understanding of how these problems come about. And in terms of you know talking specifically about women, you know women already faced hurdles and inequity of all types pre-COVID nineteen, and now face additional challenges in the wake of the pandemic. And this is of course yeah. you know further exacerbated for for Black women and for all all women of color. How do you view yeah. the impact of the virus, looking at it through an intersectional gender lens, and what most concerns you? Well, you know, we've been looking at uh, the intersectional failures that COVID lays bare for the last 
well weeks on mm-hmm. um, on our podcast. So yes. every Wednesday we come together to talk about what are we able to see now that COVID has laid bare? Because the, these are the pre-existing inequalities that have already been part of our society. So, you know, we are seeing where essential but expendable workers are situated and many of those are women. So we see it in agricultural work. We see it in uh, nursing, especially caretaking for uh, older uh, Americans who are in, you know, being warehoused, frankly, in institutions where our lack of concern about what happens to people when they are no longer contributing to the productivity of society places them in contexts where people who are taking care of them are not valued. They're the lowest of the income workers and therefore more exposed to COVID, which in turn makes them expose their families to COVID. So we're seeing how that's playing out. Of course, we're seeing how when our society faces insecurities in a patriarchal this uh, in a patriarchal disorder many times that confrontation with insecurity prompts those who need to reassert their sense of control into violence against those that they have control over so the explosion of violence happening in the home is something that we've been hearing from domestic violence and interpersonal violence, you know, caretakers, people who are trying to intervene and make life safe for women, for children, and other disempowered people. So, so we're seeing that. I think, you know, obviously we're going to see tremendous, you know, losses in the economic being of of women who are not even frontline workers, but who are business owners, women who are professionals, women who are in the fields that are more likely to employ women and particularly black women. So we're seeing what's happening to the post office. Mm-hmm. We're seeing what's happening, mm-hmm. um, you know, to teachers. We see what's happening, you know, to healthcare professionals. That's a huge pushback. Mm-hmm. And, you know, just to put a point on the fact that this is just telling us what the pre-existing inequalities are. We have nurses who had to wear bandanas and garbage bags. We have police officers who have gear that would be suitable for going to war. Let's just sit with that for a moment. How did those become our social priorities? And what is that saying? about our membership in this thing called the United States of America, mm-hmm. where we're all equal, but some people are a hell of a lot more equal than others. We have allowed this to happen. Mm-hmm. So number one, clearly it's giving us a sense of where things are shaken out for women. And of course, when we intersect where women are in the workforce with where racialized people are in the workforce, we have a sense of what this pyramid is going to shake out to look like. So, so that's number one. But number two, how did it happen? Where, where were our voices when these decisions were being made? What were the conditions that allowed for hospitals to be defunded and closed with Democratic as well as Republican you know, people in power 
and military grade weapons being transferred to small Barney Fife kind of police forces. Where were we? I remember when I talked to you for the piece that I did, putting a gender lens on COVID-19, you were observing how the government response had been devoid of any, you know, sort of gender or racial consciousness whatsoever. So what would it mean to have an appropriate response right now? And what can people do to push for institutional change? Well, I think the first response has got to be a tremendous backlash that we create against the robbing of the public purse by corporations, plutocrats, and billionaires. Mm -hmm. So we have this virus that wreaked havoc on our society, on our economy, on working people. And at most, people got 1200 bucks while huge Corporations were able to line their pockets with no requirement that they necessarily spend in a way that is responsible for the fact that this was a threat that undermined the entire society. Mm -hmm. So there should be consequences to that. Mm-hmm. There should be consequences to the fact that the epicenters of the disease and the lives that are being lost are not receiving their due share of support because, frankly, a Southern rule that we're all under right now in the form of Mitch McConnell effectively saying that this is a blue state bailout. There should be massive response to that. I think there should be massive response to the incompetence of leadership that allowed this to happen. Massive response to that. And massive response to the irresponsibility that we're seeing with our highest elective officials not demonstrating the protection that they need to be demonstrating in simply wearing the mask, but instead embracing this mucho macho frankly, great white father. I don't have to worry about uh, spreading the disease. I don't have to worry about getting the disease. And none of you should worry about it either. That is the most irresponsible thing that I think a president has done in recent history. Mm -hmm. And there ought to be hell to pay for it. So I would just start number one with, we need to get hella mad about what happened. And need to actually make it consequential. If we're not able to change the equation on the ground, then we're not going to ever be able to change the sum total of it. Mm -hmm. So we have to start from punishing the kind of behavior that makes it clear that there is no investment in real leadership in America. This is just holding on to the reins of America while it is being plundered. And I think we need to confront that directly. And then other things flow from that. What have we been sold that allows us to think that it was okay to defund most of our public institutions? And how have stereotypes, frankly, uh, against some of us, stereotypes about Black women been marshaled to shred the social safety net? So, Mm -hmm. So let's rewind that and go back to that moment and think, okay, What we're seeing now is the 20-year consequence of that. Where were we? 
Mm-hmm. And now how can we show up now that we've seen what has happened? So, so I think that, and then it, and then it's all the things like that. Our public hospitals ought to be a place where people go to get well, not to go to die. And in this pandemic, that's what they turned into. No shade on all the people who work there and, and some who gave up their lives. Shade on a government and a society that allowed our, our hospitals, our public hospitals to become that. Shame on us for allowing a public education system to basically be sold off with the clear awareness that we were not going to invest in educational equity for all our children. Shame on us for allowing education to be resegregated. Shame on us for allowing higher education to go to the highest bidders, literally the highest bidders. Mm -hmm. Do you see a connection between racialized police violence and the fact that Black communities have been most affected and are dying in greater numbers from the coronavirus? Like, how, how are they connected? They're connected because the precarity of Black life has been a condition of American possibility since our founding. And that equation has not changed. Mm-hmm. So this entire society, the resources that it brings to bear, its position in the world economy, all of that was made possible not only by stealing the labor you know, of, of Black people, but stealing the reproductive freedom of of women, black women. So the idea that property is always trumping the value of black life, security always trumping the value of black life. That has been the equation that America was born into. And nothing has changed that. Nothing significant. So police can still take black people's lives. Police can still, the the carceral system can still reap profits off of criminalizing black people. And a conservative Supreme Court has effectively allowed the police to criminalize and surveil and ultimately kill black people with very, you know, few consequences to it. And of course, it also happens to white people. But let's face it, we criminalize and imprison more people per capita than virtually any other country in the world. Part of what makes it possible is those logics that themselves were built and based on anti-Black racism that goes all the way back to the past. Mm -hmm. So much of what is made possible for everyone is grounded in this initial sense that there is a group of people in our society that have to be surveilled for us to be secure, that is us, and have to be disciplined and punished because otherwise they will steal from us either directly or indirectly through government supports and services. So that idea that having public support for social welfare is not a good idea because there's some people that are going to take advantage of it. That idea is partly what makes so many conservative, poor white people not support Obamacare. Mm-hmm. 
You know, there's a book that Jonathan, Jonathan Netzel wrote called Dying for Whiteness. And it's all about how many white people will give up programs that will benefit from them because they're they're socialized into believing that black people will take advantage of it and they're undeserving. So how does this come together? Black people disproportionately dying of COVID and people are okay with it. They're willing to open up the economy with it because of it, in spite of it. That's rehearsing that same idea that that black people are the problem group. They're expendable. And so, yeah, that expendability clearly You know, if they're expendable to a disease, they're certainly expendable to the cops who, after all, are protecting us from them. You know, there are so many shifts that obviously have to take place. And that is like my hope is that there's going to be such a mandate for that type of change. And and also, who do we look to as leaders? And one of the things I want to underscore is just over the years, it feels like many of us have come to realize the importance of Black female leadership to the advancement of social justice movements. We want to support Black women and follow your leadership. And so what action or show of support would you say is most critical to realizing the future we hope to see in that regard? Well, I, I think it's it's moving Black women from a symbol of leadership to the reality of leadership. So, you know, there's the trust Black women, but people aren't saying invest in Black women. People acknowledge how Black women's political you know, mobilization and activation, you know, got Doug Jones elected, but we didn't see a tremendous investment in the development of Black women as candidates, nor did we see a tremendous investment in Black women organizations and institutions to actually fund the efforts to mobilize masses of Black people who are going to be needed in the election coming up in November. Nor did we see a tremendous investment in responding to efforts to push Black people out of the uh, political you know, arena of vote suppression. People have been raising alarms about that for eight years. And the money that would be necessary to expand these concerns into a real muscular response to disenfranchisement has still been weak. And I'll say finally, just funding uh, Black women-led organizations. I've seen, you know, in the last couple of weeks, finally people are turning to, you know, say her name, for example. But when they finish talking about why say her name is important, I'm not seeing, so therefore let's support specific organizations that are doing that work. <laughs> so I I think that we are in a moment where putting money and power where the rhetoric is can make a difference, but people have to really see how Black women's leadership has been starved for a generation and really step up, I think, in a, in a very you know significant way. And which Black female leaders, both, you know, sort of historical and present day, do you look to in difficult times or when you're seeking inspiration? Like, what voices do you feel might be among those helping us shape a vision of what's possible if we are able to get it right? I will say that I think that there is 
uh, a cross-generational cadre of Black women's leaders, mm-hmm. uh, Black women leaders who are doing the work in the trenches, doing the conceptualization, you know, and it's often thankless. It's often invisible. They're not the women that we see on television, right? They're not often the ones that that come to mind immediately, and yet they continue to do the work. I mean, it goes all the way back to the Montgomery bus boycott. You know, we all think that it was King and Abernathy. So, you know, you look at the bus boycott, you don't hear about the Black women, you know, like like Mrs. Robinson, who had been working for years to mobilize people. You don't hear about them, you know, doing the hard work of, making sure those nightly meetings happen, making sure people got to where they wanted to go. So we've always sort of had in a, you know, frankly, a patriarchal society, an idea about what leadership looks like, mm-hmm. you know, what gender it comes in, you know, and that means that we've missed out, you know, on real strong possibilities to build a movement that understands anti-Black racism in more fully realized ways across the gender spectrum. It's not just lynching and quasi lynching. It's a lot of stuff, including Mm -hmm. sexual violence against black women, including terrorizing black women, not just in the streets, but in their homes, like what happened to Breonna Taylor. Mm -hmm. It means understanding that, you know, Rosa Parks, didn't become an activist when she decided not to give her seat up on that Montgomery bus. She was an activist when she defended Reese Taylor, who was raped by several white men and they were never brought to, to justice, you know, to trial for it. What would leadership look like and what would our movement look like if if gender-based violence and racial violence had been seen as part of the same experience mm-hmm. throughout the 20th century, where would we be now? Mm-hmm. So I think we just have to ask those questions mm-hmm. and be far more prepared to accept and see leadership in Black women and identify leadership in, in ways that are not traditional. Absolutely. There is so much that is disheartening, you know, painful and disturbing right now. And, you know, as we've been talking about, some Americans are just waking up to it while Black Americans have been facing this their whole lives. How do you take care of yourself and stay positive and energized during times like this when you must be exhausted? You know, here I am keeping you, you've been probably talking all day, yet your soul must be stirred so intensely and you are called to continue doing the work. You know, this question of self-care is really a generational one because people my generation never asked that. (laughs) We didn't have a plan. So, you know, I I attribute just having the conversation in my head to my youngins because they're the ones that frame for me, you know, the need for self-care. I guess I have to say that I have awareness of the need to find moments of solitude to sit with what is happening, not an escape from it. Because I don't have, I don't feel that I have the capacity to actually do an escape. 
but I do have the capacity to sit with this in different ways. So I have to tell myself to get up from the phone and the computer and, and go outside. And so now I, I've gardened in every square foot of soil I can mm. find around <laughs> Um, so, so, so that's, that's been, you know, a place of, of some peace and being able to track the passage of time. So now I see the things that I planted right after we went into lockdown mm-hmm. and, you know, mm-hmm. seeing them grow, you know, is a reminder that I still have life to attend to. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, I may be attending to that life by trying to be fully present in this moment, but it is life that I am attending to. Mm-hmm. And that little bit, uh, mm-hmm. I think, you know, keeps keeps me going. You know, I do have to say that I frankly think that some of it is that we we literally can't take it all in right now. And that's probably a good thing. Well, by the way, your sort of garden story is sort of like an analogy for my next question, which, you know, because I mm-hmm. have been thinking what fertile time it is and about what we're what we're planting. Because yeah. that's one of the things that kind of keeps getting me through it. Like, I don't know what's happening metaphysically, but I feel like, you know, there's everything's just falling apart. And then we we have this opportunity, you know, sort of at this pivotal time of reflection and kind of rebuilding. What is your highest, most aspirational vision of the new world that can be created? Like, what does that look like? My highest aspirational vision to the extent that I can imagine it is a world where there are no traces of a past that categorized and treated a whole section of this population as utterly expendable. So it would mean that the person who is sitting at the helm you know, of uh, our organizations and our society and the person who is cleaning their office are not looking at fundamentally different life chances. Mm. That, that would be the most radical vision and that they are not color-coded or gendered. So a world in which those identifying marks don't lose the ascriptive meaning that people embrace, but lose the hierarchical placement that those categories now represent in society. So no race is associated with being on the top or the bottom, nor is the top or the bottom a reflection of of life chances. You know, there is no top or bottom. Mm -hmm. There's people do what they do and there are plenty of resources for everyone to live a sustainable life of satisfying pursuits and joy. I don't think that's impossible. I think it is impossible as long as we believe that people get what they deserve and not what we as society have, you know, allowed them to acquire or deprived them from acquiring. I'm going to take that wish and that vision and hold it in my heart because I do think it starts with just visualizing and believing it's possible. And I feel something happening very powerful in this moment. And I feel very more confident about it because of people like you that are out there doing this work.
I have long admired the words and work of Kimberly Crenshaw and believe that intersectionality is a necessary and urgent framework for understanding and effectively addressing the deeply rooted societal and systemic issues we face in our country and world today. As our country is upended by a global pandemic and protests take over our streets nationwide, the long-neglected cracks in our society have been painfully laid bare for all of us to see. We have a unique opportunity, a mandate really, to reflect and rebuild, but we will only be able to do so through using and implying an intersectional lens, otherwise we will perpetuate outdated paradigms and systems that discriminate and no longer serve us. I want to thank Kimberly Crenshaw and the countless advocates and activists like her who are changing our world. And it's on all of us to do our parts. Thank you for listening. You've been listening to Shiftmakers. For more information about this podcast or our host, check out marianschnall.com.